are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 46, For Whom the Podcast Tolls. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. As appellate lawyers, we are writers. There are many other things too, but at our essence, we're all writers. Sometimes people ask me what kind of lawyer I am, and I usually say, oh, a good one. And while I hope that's objectively true, it's also a joke or a dodge because it's hard to explain sometimes what I do. I'm sure you probably have a stock answer that you give to and maybe some follow-up for when people give you that quizzical look. What would you say if I asked you, what kind of writer are you? What's your writing style? Given that writing is the major tool of our trade, it's something worth giving some thought. One way we learn to write and develop our style is by modeling other writers. Maybe our legal writing instructor in law school or a senior partner at our law firm or well-known legal writers. For the podcast, I plan to do a series of shows about writing style and explore some of these issues. Dig a little bit into some writing styles and writing idols. It won't necessarily be a consecutive series, but I'll produce a few over time. I hope you'll enjoy this deeper dive into some of the less discussed aspects of our craft as legal writers. This first installment might be a little bit unexpected. I want to start talking about legal writing styles by talking about the writing of a famous author who is most definitely not a lawyer or a legal writer, Ernest Hemingway. Writing inspiration need not be limited only to legal writers. Legal writing is writing, and there can be much to learn from writers of all genres. When it comes to famous authors, legal writers are likely to invoke the name of Ernest Hemingway, an American journalist, novelist, short story writer, and winner of a Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the Nobel Prize in Literature. Hemingway was known for his economical and understated writing style that's consistent with the philosophy of many skilled legal writers, including Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Antonin Scalia. So to delve into this a little bit more, I'm joined by English Professor Emeritus Don Dyker of Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Don is a noted Hemingway scholar who's authored many papers analyzing Hemingway's works. Uh, he was named to the editorial board of the Hemingway Review and he is a frequent presenter at the Hemingway Society's biennial conferences, or at least in the before times, they were biennial. And uh, he also happens to be my uncle. Uh, Don, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dwayne. Good to be with you. Good to be talking about um, Hemingway and legal writing. Yeah, gives you a chance to talk about Hemingway to, uh, to a bunch of lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> what more could I ask? <laughs> That's right. So I wanted to uh, talk to somebody about the application of Hemingway's writing style to legal writing. But, you know, of course, you came to mind. I don't suppose this is something that, that comes up too much at the Hemingway Society, though, right? No, it's not. Dwayne. In fact, I, I don't recall it ever, it ever coming up. And uh, in, 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 in printed, um, published discussions of Hemingway's style, um, legal writing is not often mentioned. 
Yeah, that's interesting because I'm certainly not the first person to make this connection. I don't take credit for it uh, between, you know, as Hemingway being sort of a role model for some aspects of legal writing. It's definitely something that gets discussed in legal writing circles. And one of the quotes that you see a lot uh, that gets tossed around is, write like Hemingway, not like Faulkner. Uh, I know that your focus is more on on what Hemingway writes and and themes and that sort of thing, as opposed to maybe the mechanics of how he writes. But clearly, you can't get away from that. So, what? Uh, how would you describe Hemingway's writing style? Well, uh, first of all, I would say that it's 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 varied, it's flexible, and it's an adaptable. But having said that, um, when people talk about uh, the, the about the Hemingway style. It, this is usually what they mean. Uh, they mean that the writing is um, nothing fancy or showy, nothing flowery or rhetorical, unadorned. Uh, and then to go in the other direction, uh, Hemingway's writing is simple, direct, concise, economical, terse, tight, clipped. Another um, word that's often used to describe Hemingway's style and and some of the conversation of his characters is laconic it's 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 under it's under under understated you you often say less than than what you mean and do you think that that is that style something that was in his early works is that something that developed over time what he's known for well i think what developed what came from the early works and i know you mentioned this in your notes to me Dwayne is his working at the Kansas City Star. He always wanted to be a writer, and so he's going to start out writing. So through connections, he got a job with the Kansas City Star newspaper. And the Kansas City Star had um, a style sheet that was known then and is known then. And the four, the four first statements in the Kansas City style sheet meant for all its reporters to follow are, number one, use short sentences. Number two, use short first paragraphs, and really all short paragraphs. Number three, use vigorous English. And number four, be positive, not negative. And and I think that influenced Hemingway uh, all all his life, which is sometimes why his, uh, his style is called journalistic, even though I think it goes far beyond journalism in its uh, attention uh, to deeper meanings and more complex themes. Though that type of advice for journalistic writing certainly was nothing unusual, even at the time. I mean, that's that's pretty standard stuff. That's still uh, the fodder of journalism schools today, right? But it was it, what was different about it is Hemingway was applying it to fiction writing, which was you know more unique at the time. That that is true. I think you're absolutely right about it. And and you mentioned Faulkner, and Faulkner stylistically is often seen as the the complete opposite of Hemingway. Faulkner noted for long longer paragraphs, more complex paragraphs, um, writing that is that is adorned, uh, that uh, that is elusive. A l l u a l l u s i v e. That elusive. In Hemingway, you find very few allusions, whether it's to the Bible or past literature, anything else. So Hemingway, one of the reasons that I think Hemingway has become and remains popular is that his his writing does not put off anyone as being um, too pretentious or, 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 or too or too difficult. 
Um, you do not encounter many multisyllabic uh, nouns, um, and, uh, and 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 the the the, the, the sentence pattern that Hemingway most often follows, although again, with some variation is subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object, and always with an emphasis in in the sentence on the noun and on the verb and not on the adjective or the adverb. I want to talk about a a passage as an example of this. And now when lawyers talk about his writing style, they often talk about the old man in the sea, which I guess because it's probably one of his most uh, popular later works. And I think that was when he got the Nobel Prize for Literature. I think that was around the time of The Old Man in the Sea. So it gets a little bit more attention. But I know that you may be more inclined to discuss The Sun Also Rises, which I know is one of your favorites that you have written about. And there is a, a particular passage that I've seen other lawyers refer to that I think is an example of some of this that I want to uh Uh, play for you right now. In the morning, I walked down the boulevard to the Rue Soufflot for coffee and brioche. It was a fine morning. The horse chestnut trees in the Luxembourg gardens were in bloom. It was a pleasant early morning feel of a hot day. I read the papers with the coffee and then smoked a cigarette. The flower women were coming up from the market and arranging their daily stock. Students went by, going up to the law school or down to the Sorbonne. The boulevard was busy with trams and people going to work. Now, I would say that that would be a great way to write a statement of facts in an appellate brief. Uh, We always say, you know, simple declarative sentences that paint a picture that's easy to understand and easy to digest. I think that's, that passage is a great example of that. I, I counted the longest sentence in that passage was 16 words. The shortest was five, and the average was just under 12 words. Um, that might be a little bit uh, aggressive a goal for, for, for lawyers, but uh, what, what do you think about that section? Is that a good example of what we're talking about here with Hemingway's uh, more direct and simple style? Uh, y- yes, I think it is. and. Um... And, and very easily understood. Um, there's nothing off-putting in the syntax of the sentences or the, or the vocabulary. Um, but I, I would go further, Dwayne, to say that well, Hemingway, Hemingway is not only trying to give you a sense of, of, of a typical morning in Paris for Jake Barnes, the protagonist of The Sun Also Rises. What he's trying to show you without saying it in every sentence is Jake loves this city. He loves this town. He loves going to work. Uh, for the people who see this novel as, um, uh, as, as an example of chaos, chaos uh, or disorder, this paragraph is all about order. Flower people arranging their, their, their goods. Some going up, some going down, some going down, some going up. This this is a a, a a paragraph that makes clear that Jake has a patterned and ordered and, and purposeful life. So that's that's. I don't know whether this is an example of Hemingway's famous iceberg theory, theory but that's beneath the surface. Uh, and and I you you may have to. 
read the novel more than once in order to come away with this. Although what Hemingway would hope is that he wouldn't have to tell you what I've just said, uh, that, 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 that Jake really likes his city, he really likes his job, he really likes going to work. And, 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 and if, I, if I tell you it clearly enough, and I, I prick exactly the right details, you're going to sense that. Right? And so um, Hemingway believed, as many writers do, that readers sometimes will feel things without understanding them. Yeah, and that's a good transition to, you had already mentioned um, this uh, principle, and, and Hemingway coined the term himself, the iceberg principle, uh, as a, a writing device that he used. Can you describe that in a little bit more detail of what, what he meant by the iceberg principle? Well, his comment uh, is, is uh, is quote, the dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one-eighth of it being above water. Um, and 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 a, a, a synonym or another way of talking about the iceberg theory is just to call it it's it's a theory of omission of it's a theory of leaving out and this is what Hemingway said about that quote if you leave out important things or events that you know about the story is strengthened if you leave or skip something because you do not know it the story will be worthless. So to, to give an example of that, uh, and I can do it, I think people don't have to have read the story. Many people think that Hemingway's best ever short story is called Big Two-Hearted River. It's the story, it's the concluding climactic story of his first collection of, of stories called In Our Time. And Big Two-Hearted River is about a young man, uh, again, Nick, Nick Adams, the same, um, the, the same uh, excuse me. Uh, I mixed up because Nick Adams and Jake Barnes, two of two of Hemingway's characters, are very much alike because each of them is in some way autobiographical. Each of them is in some way an avatar uh, mm-hmm. of, of Ernest Hemingway himself. Nevertheless, so uh, in 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 the story in the story Big Two Hundred River, we find a young man taking a train up to the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. Getting off the train, finding um, finding the, the the entire landscape burned out, blackened, and hiking to the river, to Big Tohono River, to fish and 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 to catch trout. And it's a it's a long story about a young man um, trying to regain his equilibrium, trying to regain his sanity, trying to get back on his feet, trying to leave the black and the past behind him. And what Hemingway said, Hemingway himself used this, this is my example, it's Hemingway's. Hemingway himself, this, this, this for Hemingway is an example of his theory of omission. What he omitted to say in the story was that Nick was, was that Nick was coming back from the war. And and it, w- it was from the war that one of the traumas, not the only one probably, but one of the traumas that Nick was trying to recover from by leaving civilization, going uh, north all by himself. It's a story. It's a long story in which there's only a single character going north and um, traveling far across land until he, he, he moves from the, from the blackened, burnt out dust 
to the green living um, vegetation and and the swirling rivers and uh, and at the end of the story, Nick Nick is well on his way to recovering from trauma, including the unmentioned war. Right. Now, that's interesting. Now, let me bring this around to the the comparison that I'm making to legal writing is that I have always said, uh, and I'm not the only one, but when a lawyer is analyzing a case uh, in a legal brief and they're explaining how the holding, how the, the ruling in that case applies to the issue before the court, it's better to lead the judge to an inescapable conclusion, right, than to tell the judge outright what they should conclude. It's more persuasive for the judge, for the reader, to reach that conclusion on her own. Now, now, there's a caveat. The lawyers who are listening to the podcast will know there's certain things we can't be we can't be implicit about in legal writing, especially as appellate lawyers. There's things we have to say, right, that we have to explicitly say to have on the record and to preserve them and that sort of thing. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about this idea that rather than, you know, tell a judge that a, that a particular case is not applicable it, uh, to a, a particular situation. We, we can do that, but it's much better if we can lead them to that conclusion by, you know, the rest of the narrative of the story. And that feels to me like an application in a way of Hemingway's iceberg principle. Now, he wasn't trying to be persuasive in the way that lawyers are. He was trying to entertain uh, and engage his reader. but. Uh, we're doing that too as lawyers. We're trying to, to, I mean, not to entertain, but certainly to engage a judge to get them thinking, to get them to be an active reader and to reach the same conclusion or to reach the conclusion that we, we hope that they will uh, through the writing process. So I, I think Hemingway would, would approve of that advice. Do you think? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, there's one uh, Hemingway story. Uh, it's probably his most popular story now. That is, if you if you take uh, an American literature or just a short story class in college these days, whether it's in Florida or Ohio, uh, the one Hemingway story you're likely to read, and you'll only get to read one Hemingway story because the Hemingway family permits only one Hemingway story to be. Uh, reproduced in any one volume, no matter how much you pay. That one likely Hemingway story, the most popular one these days, is called Hills Like White Elephants. And Hills Like White Elephants is a two-person story, uh, a couple, an, an American couple traveling in Spain who have a discussion and recurring argument uh, that ends really without it being settled. But in terms of a theory of omission, the one key word, the center of the story, the word that's never, never mentioned is abortion, uh, because the the young uh, American woman is pregnant. Uh, the uh, her companion does wants to have uh, her, her to have an abortion and tries to convince her and persuade her. And at the end of the story, it's not clear if he has or not. We know for sure she does not want to, but whether she finally gives in, uh, it's not clear. So there you have, Dwayne, there you have that, um, that theory of, uh, of, of, of omission. Um, I'm trying to think if there's a, a Hemingway story that I know of in which he's trying to persuade the reader of something. And that story, I don't know 
I don't know that Hemingway takes a clear stand except to say that the the American man is a jerk. He's a jerk. It's a you know, Heming- you, as you know, Hemingway has this reputation of being a male chauvinist. This is a story, Hills Like White Elephants, in which all the sympathy is with the woman, and in which uh, the man uh, again is uh, is is more than a jerk. He's callous. He's insensitive. He's not worth loving um, the loving that that the woman gives him. Um, maybe as we go along, I'll think I'll think of a story in which Hemingway is trying to persuade someone of something. Generally, what what he wants to do is he wants to give you the experience. He wants you to feel what it's like. Um, to, to be watching a bullfight. He wants you to feel what it's like um, to go down an alpine uh, ski slope. He, he wants you to feel what it's like uh, to hook a crowd or, as, as you referred earlier, Dwayne, to the old man in the sea, what it's like to, to catch a, a hook a marlin that you just can't bring in because... Uh, the sharks are attacking him, and you're only one person, and 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 uh, and you're not you're not the fisherman Santiago that you used to be. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that is, uh, even though you know, of course Hemingway wasn't necessarily being persuasive in that sense, um, but when I'm when I'm writing uh, as a legal writer, especially you know when we do appellate briefs. Um, a big part of it, and a lot of people would say it, one of the most important parts is a statement of facts. You have to uh, explain to the court, you know, how, how did we get here? And you expect as a part of that, you know, it's interesting, statements of facts are not supposed to be argumentative. They're supposed to be factual. They have to be supported by the record. But yet, even within that realm, um, you can your goal, your hope is to produce a statement of facts that leads the court to an inescapable conclusion, right? But before you ever get to the law, you want the court to have a feeling of what should happen, depending, of course, on what you're advocating for, that either as an appellate judge, we're either arguing that the that the trial court was wrong or that the trial court was right in making whatever ruling that they made. So I think it, it's the same sort of principle applies, is that you want to engage, yeah, judges are sometimes described as tired readers, right? Because they have a lot that they have to read. Their whole job is sorting through these things. So to the extent that we can engage them in the statement of facts so that they have some feeling of, of you know, the experience and, and, and which side of this uh, battle, for lack of a better term, they're on, that's, that's important. So I, I think that there is, there is something to be learned from fiction writers, not that we're writing fiction, but just this, this engagement and this interest factor. It, even legal writing doesn't have to be staid and boring. It can be interesting if we're willing to take the time and put in the effort to, to do that. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm, one of the ways that, that Hemingway um, gets meaning and power into his writing is since he's using you know simple direct sentences, simple simple vocabulary. Um, one of the ways he he uses um, sentence rhythms and and repetition a good deal. 
um, that you didn't see that in, in that lovely passage that you cited earlier from Jake going to work in Paris, uh, you know, on a on a morning. Uh, I mean, that's that again. That's that's a wonderful example of of Hemingway's prose. But l- let me give you another example. That's that's a major contrast to that passage. Okay, and and you, and you will and you will hear it. Dwayne, I, I won't have to I won't have to point it out to you. And and this is a passage from the, the story we spoke of earlier, uh, Big Two Hearted River. And it occurs after uh, there are two parts of Big Two Hearted River. <laughs> Big Two Hearted River Part One, Big Two Hearted River Part Two. This occurs um, toward the end of the first part of Big Two Hearted River, where Nick has hiked and hiked over over the country until he finally has reached the place where he where he wanted to camp for the night and i want to read you um i want to read you the passage there or at least it's just it's just part of the passage across the open mouth of the tent nixed fixed cheesecloth to keep out mosquitoes he crawled inside under the mosquito bar with the various things from the pack to put at the head of the bed and under the slant of the canvas Inside the tent, the light came through the brown canvas. It smelled pleasantly of canvas. Already there was something mysterious and homelike. Nick was happy as he crawled inside the tent. If he had, he had not been unhappy all day, this was different, though. And now, now listen to listen especially, Dwayne, to this this series of, of of sentences. He had not been unhappy all day. This was different, though. Now things were done. There had been this to do. Now it was done. It had been a hard trip. He was very tired. That was done. He had made his camp. He was settled. Nothing could touch him. It was a good place to camp. He was there in the good place. He was in his home where he had made it. Now he was hungry. So and there, so you have a series of five or six short sentences, just four or five words long, all following the same pattern, repeating the same words. Uh, and what they do, I think what they're meant to do, what Hemingway wants wants them to do, is to show you how happily excited Jake is. He's finally there. He's in this good place. He may have had a home elsewhere, but he's made it now. He was, he's here. And now that now that he's done all this, finally he can allow himself to be hungry and and think about dinner. But when I started by talking about Hemingway's adaptable style, and I'm assuming this is true for 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 legal writers as well, that on different occasions, perhaps with different courts, with different judges, your 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 strategies might not be exactly ex- exactly the same. So what Hemingway is trying to do here is to create exactly the kind of style, use exactly the kind of sentence structure that will tell the reader, without him hitting over the head with it, that, boy, is Jake, I mean, excuse me, is Nick Adams ever happy to get here? Oh, is he so excited to get here? So that's, 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 an, that's an example of that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. And you know that's another thing that I think is a is a principle that we use in legal writing. Not not so much. I like the idea of the you know the 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 pattern and the rhythm 
Um, that is interesting. Certainly repetition and use of the same uh, terminology are things that we do to, again, to, you know, to, to, you know, uh, to push a point home, to emphasize a particular point, um, you know, that repetition is helpful in persuasiveness. Right. And uh, well, Dwayne, do, do, does, does it ever occur to you or other legal writers um, when, when you're writing uh, an appellate brief that you want to um, kind of create a mood of any kind? Is, is the word mood um, uh, relevant at all? You know, I, I, we don't talk about that. I think that we, we do in a, in a limited sense. I mean, I think that the, the appellant, right, the lawyer who is writing uh, with an effort to overturn uh, the decision below is certainly trying to create some sort of mood that there has been an injustice done, right? That something was, was, was not done properly, that it was not fair, uh, to their client, uh, where the lawyer who's representing the appellee is doing just the opposite. Uh, this is very standard. This is not a big deal. The, the, this was, you know, fairly handled. It's the way things always go, right? So there, there, there's those two which which are present in sort of every brief. Beyond that, we don't we don't talk about that a lot, but it's an interesting concept, right? Um- let, let, let me uh, just read another very short um, Hemingway sentence to you in terms of the creation of mood. Um, the very earliest Nick Adams story, and, and Hemingway wrote 20-some on Nick Adams stories, his favorite character, from, be, from beginning to end. Even when, when Hemingway died, they found a big, big, big Nick Adams story on his desk that he tried to write. Uh, during the 50s, but couldn't finish. As as Hemingway got older, he had more and more difficulty finishing stories. And the irony, Dwayne, is that the, the writer who was known for his compression, his economy, at the end, could, did not know how to stop writing. At any rate, N- um, Indian Camp is a brutal story in some ways. Um, it's a story about um, Nick and his father, Going in, to Indian camp in the Upper Peninsula uh, uh, to uh, to attend to uh, a young Indian woman who is, who is ha- difficulty having um, ha- having birth, and um, while while they are operating on her, um, uh, in the in the bunk above her is an Indian husband. Who has to be there because he had cut his foot with an axe very badly not long ago. So he's there, uh, witnessing, hearing at least uh, his wife undergo screams as this cesarean operation is being performed without any tools, with a jackknife, with fishing leader, uh, and and uh, what happens during the operation is, and they only. They only find that find this out later is that he slits his throat and kills himself. So it's a brutal story. And on the way back from the Indian camp to the rowboat, where they're going to go back to the, the to Nick's father's camp, uh, Nick asks his father a, a lot of questions, and, and the father tries to answer. But I, I, this all leads up to this final final sentence in the story. And I'm going to read it to you uh, 
And I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think is going on here. This is the final sentence of Indian camp. Quote, in the early morning on the lake, sitting in the stern of the boat with his father rowing, he felt quite sure that he would never die. So what I think, what I think is going, I, I think I, I, we talked about rhythm earlier. Uh, and I, I think that this is a soothing, gentle rhythm in the early morning on the lake, sitting in the stern of the boat with his father rowing. You can hear the buildup of prepositional phrases, I think. He felt quite sure that he would never die. So it's this lilting, lyrical, soothing, gentle rhythm that suggests that despite the brutality, witnessing uh, an Indian husband slit his throat from ear to ear, despite that, Nick is somehow, he's somehow emotionally recovered, even if he has done so (laughs) at the cost of fooling himself, as many of us do most of the time, fooling himself into the belief that he would never die. So, um, I mean, if Hemingway has a reputation for simplicity, I want to suggest that there is a complexity of here, um, not 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 in not in vocabulary of any, of any kind. And that sentence is pretty is pretty simple, um, but but he's very attentive, I think, to the way that his words will be felt uh, on the on the ear and the heart of, of his reader. One thing, Dwayne, that we haven't mentioned, but that you can see here, um, in, in in sentence in sentence structure, I mean, generally you only you only have two choices. I mean, you you can coordinate or you can subordinate, and when you coordinate, uh, as as the word co indicates, is a process of addition. You're 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 adding usually one 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 independent clause onto another independent clause onto another independent clause. When you subordinate by contrast, uh, it's no longer an addition. It's a question of um, modification or reflection or um, moving in a slightly different direction. Faulkner is very very fond of of um, of, of subordination. Hemingway rarely subordinates, just like Walt Whitman. Uh, it, it's mostly a process of, of addition, and 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 and, and subordination is a is a syntax that's especially appropriate for reflection, analysis, intellectualization. Coordination, by contrast, is especially appropriate for narration. And, and I think particularly appropriate to uh, at least to the type of of legal writing that we've been talking about, like where you're doing a narrative of facts and that sort of thing. Uh, It seems like, uh, for instance, it seems like Hemingway uses the word and much more than he uses commas, right? It's absolutely right. Yes. um, Indicative of what we're talking about. Yeah, no, 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 that is, that is exactly right. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at 877-810-5525, and their contact information is always in the show notes. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. 
CSBA is a national agency that sits with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. I suggest you take a moment, visit their website, courtsurety.com. It's full of valuable resources, including a state-by-state guide to appeal bond requirements and a comprehensive FAQ on collateral, underwriting, and the application process. The next time a client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. I think that what what we've sort of been talking about is that it's a little bit of an oversimplification to say that Hemingway's writing is simple and direct and not complex. It's on its face. Uh, that is true. But certainly the the meaning that he's trying to get through is is actually much deeper but he's he's the uh the the interesting part is he's he's trying to convey very very uh, deep uh thoughts through very simple writing i i think you're right about that but when when um when i i said earlier that hemingway's paragraphs tended to be short but there are some um there are some exceptions to that if Hemingway is trying to make you feel uh, some complex action, then then the um, then the sentences can just go on and on and on as they do say in in the sun also rises when he's talking about bullfighting as they do in Big Two Hearted River when he's talking about trout fishing as they do in Cross Country Snow when they're talking about um skiing down the the the, the Swiss Alps um so uh I, again I I I think and I again I might, this has to be true of legal writers too I I think at different points in your brief um, your goal is you know, your overall goal, of course, will be the same. But I think at different points in the brief, um, the arguments might change, and and therefore your approach might change. Your um, the, the the way that you approach the material might change. It, it might be that in one paragraph you become a little more personal. In which case, that narrative style of coordination might be might might be more appropriate. Uh, there might be times in which repetition uh, to drive home a point, deliberate, purposeful repetition that, you know, like in, as in the sentence that I read you about Nick's uh, creating a home in the wilderness, in, in which that might get um, the courts or 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 the judge's attention. So. You know, I, I agree that, like Hemingway, legal writers have to be attuned to um, attuned to the devices that they have in their writing arsenal in order to achieve their um, th- th- their legal purpose. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I wonder what Hemingway would think about. Uh, our discussion and uh, you know generally his style being compared to or 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 emulated in some way even if if it's uh you know more of a, a surface way uh by legal writers i mean hemingway had an of an interesting life for sure uh he had his share of legal problems i think he had three or four divorces if i remember right um to your knowledge did he ever talk about or give any indication of what he thought about lawyers you, you know, first, let me start by saying no. 
Um, but I wasn't sure about that. So in, in preparation for this program, I, I went to Hemingway's two most uh, important uh, and authoritative biographers, Carlos Baker, who did A Life of Hemingway uh, in 1969. And then more recently, Michael Reynolds did a five-volume um, life of, of Hemingway in the, uh, in the 90s and 2000s. And, and in all of the indexes, I could not find a single references to, a reference to law and lawyers. Um, he must have. I, 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 don't, I, I don't remember his saying anything about lawyers. By contrast, um, and, and speaking of professions, uh, boy, there, there are doctors all over, in part because Hemingway's father, um, Ed, his name was, uh, Hemingway's father, who committed suicide, was was a doctor, uh, and 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 Hemingway and Hemingway's son Gregory was a, became became a doctor. But no, I can't find anything about lawyers. And I I was reading the um, in what happened to Hemingway in 1925 is, and he says that he these are his words. He made the unfortunate mistake of falling in love and being in love with two women at the same time. The first was the woman he was married to then, Hadley Richardson, who had married in 1921. And the second was uh, Pauline Pfeiffer, who he had met in 1925 in Paris. That resulted, uh, that resulted in a divorce uh, and the, uh, a difficult, difficult time for Hemingway. Suicidal... Uh, didn't know what to do with himself. Thought at one point that he had lost both his women. Both women. First, I had two, and then I had none. So he was just in despair. But but reading his letters, well, I could not. I couldn't find anything about lawyers or, you know. So uh, so I, I'm baffled about that. So so Dwayne, here's my proposal. I you know I think at the uh, next Hemingway Biennial Conference. Which is in tw- not 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 this summer. It's in 2022. It's in Montana and Wyoming, where you've always wanted to travel. I <laughs> I, I think I think you should write a, a a paper, 20 minutes, Hemingway and the law. And all I can say is this: if you submit uh, a paper to the conference um, uh, program chairs. Uh, and and writing as well as I know you write, I guarantee you you'll be on the conference, and we and we can get together in the Grand Teton Park or Yellowstone or someplace out there. Well, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> you know, right now traveling anywhere sounds pretty good, but uh, I will give that some thought. <laughs> but but hey, but that's Dwayne. I mean, that's uh, I mean that's a year and a half away. I mean, that's eighteen months away. It, it, it's got to be over by then, doesn't it? Let's let's hope so, boy. So, Don, if if lawyers wanted to learn more about Hemingway and his and you know his writing style, what what books about Hemingway would you recommend? And then we'll we'll talk about what Hemingway works might you recommend. But are there any particular books about Hemingway that you would uh, suggest to people? Well, let me recommend two. Okay, um, for for a short biography, most of Hemingway's biography biography. Biographies are six to seven hundred pages. So, uh, if 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 you want something that long, I would go with the five the five volume um, 
um, set by Michael Reynolds, just called Hemingway. And the first one is, you know, Hemingway, the young years, Hemingway, the Paris years and so forth. If, but if you'd like a nice re- readable 199 page, um, um, uh, biography of Hemingway, it's one by Verna Kale, V-E-R-N-A-K-A-L-E. It's in the Critical Live series. You can go on Amazon.com and get it for $14.95. If you want a short book, that I that I think well, I'll 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 recommend two here. If you want a book about uh, analyzing Hemingway's uh, fiction, re- lo- looking into it, I want to recommend two. Uh, the first is by Scott Donaldson, D O N A L D S O N. It's and it's called By Force of Will. By Force of Will. It's not a new book. It's 1977, but Scott Donaldson is just an excellent, excellent critic in which he interweaves Hemingway's works and his li- and lives. The problem with Hemingway, many Hemingway biographers is they more, know more about biography than they knew about Hemingway's fiction. The second book uh, I want to recommend um, is uh, by Joe Flora, F-L-O-R-A, professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill who has written a book called Hemingway's Nick Adams. And everyone agrees that Nick Adams is Hemingway's single most important character and and most reflective of Hemingway's life. So those are are the three books I would recommend. Now, maybe one of the best ways to understand Hemingway, to appreciate his style, is to read Hemingway, right? So for those who aren't as familiar with his body of work and want to get some flavor for his style, what, what works would you recommend as an entry point? Well, I would, I would recommend his um, early works. I don't believe Hemingway got better as he went along. I, I think he never equaled with just a couple of exceptions, I don't think he ever equaled the achievement of his early years. So when he's 26 years old, he publishes a book called In Our Time, which is a collection of uh, short stories, half of them about Nick Adams, arranged in chronological order, starting with Indian Camp that we've talked about and ending with Big Two-Hearted River that we talked about. So that, that that's in paperback and is very cheap and easily accessible in our time. I would also recommend um, The Sun Also Rises, which is read, read Excuse me, which is written the year after it's in it's published in 1926. And Hemingway is 27 years old. The Sun Also Rises puts Hemingway on the literary map. Once Hemingway publishes The Sun Also Rises, he is known. He's not world. He's not world famous. He doesn't become world famous until he publishes A Farewell to Arms in 1929, three years later. Uh, but but uh, the sun also rises in 1926, makes him known to everybody. You know, everybody that counts. Everybody, every everybody in the little in the in the literary world. Um, so that's that that's that's what I would recommend. There is a, a lovely collection of Hemingway short stories. It's just called the Complete Short Stories of Ernest Hemingway, the Think of the Edition. edition. Uh, so if you want all of them. That would include all the Nick Adams stories that we talked about earlier, plus later Nick Adams stories, plus all later Nick Adams stories like Hills Like White Elephants, and probably maybe the two stories that most of our uh, listeners, Dwayne, already know about, 
in part because they've been made into fairly popular movies. One is called um, The Short Happy Life of Francis Maycomer, which was made into a movie called The Maycomer Affair. And the other is The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which is made into a movie with uh, exactly that title. So if you want all of that in one handy volume, it's the complete, the complete short stories of Ernest Hemingway. Don't if, if you want this, don't buy any edition that doesn't say uh, the word complete as part of its title. Well, thanks, Don. I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time and, and your insight into Hemingway. Uh, it's great to have a, a Hemingway scholar uh, like you, uh, both uh, in the family and on my speed dial. Uh, but I'd really appreciate you uh, coming and talking to uh, my legal audience about Hemingway, and maybe we'll maybe we'll create some more Hemingway fans, and if nothing else, we'll create some interest in you know thinking about these topics and and all of my all the people who listen to the podcast. Just uh, you know, they're focused on becoming better writers and having more tools uh, can always make you a better writer. Well, thanks, Dwayne. It's always engaging. It's always fun to engage with my favorite nephew. Uh, I enjoyed uh, preparing for this. I enjoyed our conversation. And so I'm grateful to you for the invitation. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Thanks to Professor Don Diker for his insight into a personal favorite of mine, Ernest Hemingway. Well, maybe this whole discussion took you back to your college literature classes, but I hope it will give you something to think about with relation to your legal writing and maybe spur some interest in Hemingway and his work. We can't all write the classic American novel, but we can make our own writing more interesting. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contact so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will be out in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. Well, before I let me go, let you go. Let me ask you one other question that that uh, that you brought up that I thought was a little too far off tangent to ask you about. But I'm curious about what you had said about the uh, Hemingway's family controlling the intellectual property rights and limiting the number of stories that can appear. Uh, what in a collection? Yes, in a bo- in any in any single volume, you can have one story, however little, four pages, like. Uh, those like elephants or 33 pages like um, the snows of Kilimanjaro, but only one. Hmm. And I don't, I don't know why they did that. Well, and, and you know, uh, maybe you do know, I mean, J.D. Salinger, you, you, could, you can't pay enough money, to, well, at least while he was living, you couldn't pay enough money to get uh, a, a story of his. You had, you had to buy his, uh, his short story collection called Nine Stories. You had to buy that or pirated it but that was it you could never find one in a in an anthology